Hello and welcome back to another episode of Faith in Politics, the joint public issues team podcast, where we look at the relationship between faith and politics and how we as Christians can respond to both. This week, we're looking at another one of our issues here at JPIT, one of the things we care about and strive to see in the world, and that is a society where the poorest and most marginalised are at the centre. We had the privilege of speaking to a guest from a Christian charity about some of those issues, and I introduce him properly in the interview itself. So without further ado, let's jump into that. Well, we are back with another episode of Faith in Politics, and we're super, super excited to have this guest. Uh, he is the Director of External Affairs at Christians Against Poverty, or CAP, which we'll probably call it throughout the discussion. It's Gareth McNabb. Thank you for, for coming and chatting to us, Gareth. My pleasure, Ryan. Yeah, it's so nice to have you on, Gareth, and to hear about you and hear about your experiences at CAP. I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from our chat together. So just to launch off, Gareth, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background um, and what's led you up to this point of working for Christians Against Poverty? Uh, great. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I haven't always worked in charity world. In fact, working at Christians Against Poverty is the first job I've taken in the charity world and in the faith based world uh, too although I've been a Christian who's against poverty very very much against poverty for a long time not from the very beginning of my faith it took me time to understand that the good news of the gospel has relevance to how we live our lives and treat other people for the first few years of my faith uh, the ticket to heaven was what I was in it for Um, but now actually the whole understanding of heaven on earth is a large part of my beating heart for my faith being real I joined uh, Christians Against Poverty in January as Director of External Affairs out of 15 years or so, maybe 20 years working in financial services. I've worked for a couple of banks, a couple of building societies, doing various things, but mostly involved in debt collection, oddly. Um, So I started a small debt advice ministry in a church I was part of in Coventry 15 or more years ago. And a couple of years after doing that and getting off to a very slow start, maybe just a couple of clients a year. My boss at work tapped me on the shoulder and said, Gareth, we're really struggling to recruit into our collections department. And I kind of smiled and thought, I wonder why. <laughs> I just never want to be a debt collector. And he said, but Gareth, look, we're really looking for someone with good line management skills. And your unusual interest in personal debt could make you really good at this job. And I thought, well, it is quite unusual for an interest in personal debt to lead a 23-year-old to set up a debt charity. But I thought I'd give it a go. Because I, I just wondered what, what impact could a Christian leading a debt collection team in a, in a lender have? Imagine a world where the compassion and justice, that heart's compassion and justice for people in financial difficulty might affect how a corporate organisation treats people in difficult circumstances. And it kind of worked. It kind of worked. So uh, I've led various teams and done various work. But that connection between debt collection and debt advice has stayed strong throughout my career. I spent the last six years at a large building society managing that relationship between the debt collection sector and the debt advice sector, which made this move to Christian Against Poverty make a lot of sense because I now manage the team that I used to talk to all the time and still have a lot to say where external affairs covers a broad range of work, but a large part of it is helping people in financial services, in energy, in telecoms, in central and local government, understand the lives that our clients live, the service that we provide as CAP, and the part that they may be able to play in changing what it feels like to live through financial difficulty, problem debt, and poverty. 
So, so you mentioned your work with CapTech. Could you tell us a bit about what Cap actually is and something about oh, Cap's cool. vision and something about Cap's journey? Great. Okay. So Christians Against Poverty, we are 25 years old this year. Uh, we are a national debt counselling charity. We provide uh, debt advice to the same standard. I'd say that a higher standard as any other debt advice organisation. It's a regulated activity, so it's not just something dreamt up in a basement. Uh, we deliver FCA, Financial Conduct Authority, regulated service in partnership with local churches around the UK. So we serve all four nations of the UK. Um, our debt advice work is probably what we're best known for, where through the local church, our centre managers and debt coaches will visit clients in their home, take the carrier bags full of bank statements and uh, credit card demands, bailiff letters, um, and walk with those individuals until they are debt free by coming and meeting them in their homes on their own turf and walking with them for as long as it takes. In in many senses, we are representing Jesus to them, aren't we? Uh, it's a it's, it's a very godly thing to do, to sort of lift the burden of debt off of someone and then walk with them in friendship and family into the fullness of life. Alongside the debt advice work that we do, we have what we call group services. So we provide, so CAP Money uh, is probably our next most famous service. Uh, CAP Money is our budgeting skills course, three-part course, delivered again in partnership with local churches around the UK. The UK church in partnership with CAP is actually the single largest provider of face-to-face financial education to adults in the UK. That's great, isn't it? <laughs> um, financial education is one of those loaded things that most people would expect to be delivered through schools. But the fact it hasn't consistently been delivered through schools for more than a generation means actually there's at least as great a demand in the adult population for financial education and skills as there is among children. Uh, and then alongside that, we run a network of jobs clubs, helping people get ready for employment uh, with particular specialism in helping people who've been out of the jobs market for quite some time and some support around life skills so how do you get the most out of life living on a low budget so that's the fullness of the services that we provide as christian against poverty and the external affairs team we exist to bring the inside of cap out and help the outside world know what we do uh, with a particular emphasis on the professional sector so the rest of the debt advice sector um, uh, lenders creditors financial services energy and our social policy work So it's all well and good providing all these services to individuals and households to help them get out of poverty one by one where we can. But if we don't stop people falling in the river and only ever pull them out one by one, we'll be here forever and ever. But it's our vision to see lives transformed through thriving churches and together with them to seek an end to UK poverty. That end to UK poverty is only going to happen if we can get upstream and change some of the policies and processes in the church. We might call some of them powers and principalities those systems and structures that cause or embed poverty and make it worse than it has to be or last longer than it has to. It's so good to hear from you guys. And I think it's great because loads of people who are listening will have heard of CAP or might even have come to a money course or be involved in a centre in their own church. So you're just talking there about one of the values of CAP being an end to UK poverty. And here at JPIT, we're all about that and want to learn from you and CAP's approach as well. So how does CAP hope to be part of ending UK poverty? What does that look like to try and make that change? What a brilliant question and one that we are still asking and don't yet have all the answers for. I don't know that there's anybody in the anti-poverty sector that does have all the answers. Otherwise, we'd have done it by now, wouldn't we? (laughs) But it's early stages for us. So we've recently reframed our vision to include all three of these elements. 
But everyone we've introduced this vision of transformed lives, thriving churches and an end to UK poverty to has said, but you're already doing that, aren't you? And in many ways, we have been. That's what you do. Every time you meet a new client, every time you run a new cap money course, you are part of transforming a life, helping a church thrive and ending UK poverty. But by being much clearer about our aims, and particularly that one around ending UK poverty, it focuses the mind on exactly those questions. What do you need to do to end UK poverty? How will you know when you're beginning to make a difference? And what possible part could a 25-year-old charity working through a few hundred churches supported by thousands of individual donors, what part could you realistically play in ending something that's affecting more than 14 million lives in the UK today? So big, big questions. I think one of the first things that we do is be very clear that it's perfectly possible to end UK poverty and that it is desirable to do so. It's important to move on to how, but first, there are some public attitudes to and about poverty that need to be understood broadly and that need to be reframed. Now, whether we reframe them through challenging directly, there's a part to play there, but nobody likes to be made to feel stupid or wrong. <laughs> and so, when I say poverty, what do you think about is a piece of work that a number of anti-poverty charities have done recently. Joseph Rowntree Foundation have famously done it in their work around talking about poverty that I, I know JPIT and other faith-based organisations have connected with. There's important work through Trussell Trust there, refreshed vision to see an end to the need for food banks in five years. A lot of that foundational stuff around poverty. When I say poverty, do you think that that's a consequence of individuals' choices? Or do you think that that's a consequence of social structures? Or do you agree with me that it probably involves quite a lot of both? If it involves quite a lot of both, it's really important that we don't let the public attitudes go to overly towards the, if people just made better choices, they wouldn't be in poverty. So that's quite important. So there's something to do around public attitudes. There's also something to do around, there's been a proliferation of prefixed poverty. Now, try saying that three times fast. Um, uh, the proliferation of prefix poverty, what do I mean? Food poverty, child poverty, period poverty, data poverty. Um, the prefixes you can put in front of the word poverty are many and varied and serve an important purpose to help people realise what life in poverty can feel like. Until you realise that life in poverty, like the report we released just, just this, the week that we're recording this on the digital divide, Life in poverty can mean more likely to not be able to access essential services through the internet, which is a problem when even universal credit is digital by default. And so data poverty is something that does bring to life the fact that living a normal life is harder to do on a restricted income. That's a positive purpose, but a potential pitfall, lots of alliteration, I'm very sorry, I'm a bit of a preacher sometimes, a potential pitfall of prefix poverty is that you think that food poverty can be solved with food and that data poverty can be solved with data and that period poverty can be solved with feminine hygiene products. Actually, all of these things are a function of insufficient incomes for human needs, for families and households and communities to thrive. And if we're not careful, prefix poverty, which I'm not sure whether I've invented the phrase or not, um, if we're not very careful, could lead us down a path that Trussell and others rightly say no to the answer to food poverty cannot, should not, must not be food banks. It must be individuals, households and communities coming together to help people thrive. And that can't happen while incomes are so insufficient, whether that be 
social security or whether that be fair living wage across all four nations of the UK. So you, you mentioned that the need to change the public narrative and the fears you might have around the narrative of people saying if people made better choices, they wouldn't be in the situation, dot, dot, dot. What does CAP do to protect against that narrative when CAP are obviously involved with work which does seek to better equip people to deal with their their financial situation. So how do you at CAP walk that line of helping people, equipping people without furthering that narrative that exists? I think CAP are brilliantly placed to do this well and with integrity because we both deliver services to individuals, households and communities and campaign on social policy issues. The fact that we do both, I think, means that we can legitimately speak to people in power and people close to them without any accusation of bias towards that individualization of risk and responsibility or that socialization of risk and responsibility. So I can speak to somebody who thinks of poverty as an individual issue uh, and they will hear CAP's voice because we provide the budgeting help and the financial education that there are a group of people out there in the wider world who think if a little bit of financial education could make people less poor. I don't agree uh, personally in as much as that's not a million miles away from saying people are poor because they're stupid. And that can't be okay. Like that's not true. That's not real. And um, the period of time in my life that I experienced uh, poverty was because my parents earned well below a living wage. The living wage obviously didn't exist when I was a, a kid. It was a, the poverty I've lived through was a function of insufficient income that actually I learned how to budget from my mum, sitting down and going through our bills every single month, which means I know very well and hear from our clients regularly that people on a low income are some of the most expert budgeters in the country because every penny counts. But the fact that we do campaign on social policy issues means that people who think of poverty as that systemic uh, societal thing can hear our voice. And so your question is, how do we walk the line? We try and make sure that those people campaigning against systems and structures understand that if you don't do that well and with integrity, which includes centering the voice of people with actual lived experience of the issues on which you're campaigning, which we find relatively easy to do because we have a client base with whom we're delivering services to, to speak with, then, then they're not quite doing it right. So if you're a social policy campaigning organisation who gets the experts out, wheels out people like me all the time to talk about how you end poverty, then you're not featuring the voices of people who know it from experience. And if we speak to people who think that you can end poverty through just providing more and more and more services into communities, well, we want to be able to show them how actually seeking to end the need for your service if, if you're not campaigning for that, you're probably missing it. So a long answer, Ryan, uh, to a very, very good question. One of the resources that we'll be looking to try and develop over the course of 2022 uh, and into 2023 will be how, how do you help um, the public, but particularly people of faith, hear the word poverty and not respond with a left or right? What does the, what does the individualization or the socialization of risk and responsibility around poverty mean, but actually they hear poverty and they think of heaven's answer rather than the, the right's answer or the left's answer. And what, what is heaven's answer on poverty? <laughs> well, it depends which page of the book you read, doesn't it? Because if you, if you flick to the page where Jesus says the poor you always have with you, you might say heaven's answer to poverty will be the end, that it won't be gone until the end. But if you flick to the page 
back in Deuteronomy when God describes his vision for his people, Israel, or you flick to Acts where it finally happens for the first time in recorded history, it was always God's heart that there be no poor among his people. And so Jesus can't have meant when he said the poor you always have with you that there's no point trying. <laughs> I was I was asked the question at an event for some of our supporters a couple of weeks ago about is it even possible and to end UK poverty? And my answer was, well, I'm going to give the rest of my life to trying. <laughs> that we, we should go for it. It is possible. It is certainly desirable. So what is heaven's answer? I think heaven's answer will include God's people, all God's people everywhere, including the poor and marginalised um, in their lives. That inv- includes our communities, our churches, centering the voices of those who live through poverty uh, and are on the margins of society for all the other reasons that people can be or feel marginalised uh, and the sharing. Um, the, so the, the commons um, in policy world, the, the commons would be an important part of how we go about ending poverty. Some of that in um, Acts 4 and 6 would have been about the sharing of what we have with one another, holding our, our goods in common, or at least treating them not like they're ours exclusively, but that they're available for the good of people. And I, I think part of the answer in faith communities, Christian faith communities, will be that understanding that our faith is not a ticket to heaven, is it? Our faith is one of where those of us who bear God's image, all people everywhere, are able to live lives marked with dignity and agency and power, and where life scars us and removes some of that or erodes some of that that it is restored to people everywhere god's people have a very important part to play in making sure that all people everywhere understand that what it means to have dignity and agency sounds like a really exciting piece of work and something that we'll be certainly keen to look out for as cap goes on that journey to discover what it means for you and for others in society and it was great to hear you talking about income as well. I know that's a piece of work that at JPIT we're working through as well. I know that a lot of different voices in this area are having discussions and, and thoughts about what does that mean and how can we be pushing for people to have enough income to be able to support themselves so they don't get into debt in the first place. Thanks, Gareth. And we know that with CAP, you work with clients, work through churches. I just wonder if you could share with us what that might look like people to be lifted out of poverty and some of the stories we might not hear if people didn't have this debt and didn't have to struggle with poverty. I think there's a couple of examples that I'd offer up. So one of them is about how we might go about doing the policy conversation. When I joined CAP at the beginning of the year, one of my hopes and dreams was I really want to get Paula Stringer, our chief exec, I want to get her giving evidence to a select committee in the next two years. I would feel like I've made it as the new director of external affairs who wants to make his mark. How will I know that I've been good at my job? Paula will give uh, evidence in front of a select committee. The day that I'm describing that ambition to my boss, I get the text message from one of my team to say, great news, we've been asked to give evidence. The Department of Work and Pension Select Committee, we've been asked to give evidence on the removal of the £20 a week uplift to universal credit. And I'm thinking, yeah. And, uh, and then uh, uh, Rachel in my team tells me, and they want it to be one of our clients. And my mind goes off to the fallen place of, oh, what a disappointment. Because I'm, I'm human. <laughs> like, oh, that's not what I, I wanted it to be fuller. But then I thought, hang on, I've been banging the drum for centering the voices of people on the margins and with lived experience. This is even better. This is even better than Paula giving evidence. Is hearing from Anthony 
uh, I spent my morning today of uh, this recording with, with Anthony chatting a bit more about how uh, he can help us form some of our policy thoughts in the next year. Anthony sat in front of Stephen Timms and his committee and told the story of what the removal of that £20 a week meant to him and his kids, uh, how his journey to being debt free with Christians Against Poverty involving bankruptcy uh, saw such a breakthrough for him that the removal of the £20 a week was going to put him right back to where he was, that with one stroke of a pen and secondary legislation, he was put back into the position of feeling like not having enough money was well on top of him, was directly affecting his mental health, his autism, his ability to parent, his ability to seek work. Him telling his story in his words, in his voice, with me and my team around him to support him, to help him know what the process looks like and chat with him afterwards and pay for his train travel and all of that. I think that was a great example of how we begin to end UK poverty by listening to people who know about UK poverty and letting them tell their own story. I didn't send him a script. I didn't send him any kind of say it like this, make sure you get in this bit about CAP. I'm not at all interested in that having been a platform for CAP. I, want, I wanted that to be a platform for Anthony's story so that those in power can hear directly um, the impact of their choices to act or not to act. Because then it's for them to try and sleep at night, isn't it? While it's a, the a theoretical policy debate, we can argue about what kind of world we want to see. But when you hear it from uh, one of our client storytellers' own perspectives, you have to make your peace with the fact that a choice to remove that £20 a week has directly affected many millions of people's ability to parent, to seek work. I mean, all very counterproductive social policy aims. The policy intent of universal credit is supposed to be to help people into work. But that choice directly made it harder for Anthony to actively seek work. So, so I think that's, that's one way, one example of work we've done this year, I'm seeking to build on uh, next year. What does the removal of poverty look like, I suppose, in, in a household? So one of the ways to try and describe how the, the poverty premium, the fact that being poor costs you more, is realising that poor people don't make poor choices. Poor people have poor options from which to choose. And so it's not so much about uh, why don't people on low incomes just shop, shop in Aldi? Like what I do in my nice middle class lifestyle and my nice big car driving to an African Aldi. Well, one of the reasons why people on low incomes may not shop at the lowest cost store is because the cost of traveling to that store, the cost of even the assumption that a big weekly shop is the right or best way to manage your finances. They're all assumptions that we make of one another, that there is a right way to live. When you are on a low income and you don't run your own car, you may need to shop at a local convenience store where the prices are priced higher because of uh, margins. If, if you live in the village that I live in and you need to go to a store and Sainsbury's is shut for any reason, then you are shopping in a, in a corner shop and you are paying 40-50p more for a loaf of bread and 40-50p more for a tin of beans. You can't buy own brand stuff in a corner shop. It's all branded stuff, isn't it? So when you lift somebody's income to the point where they can engage with the kind of choices that I have available to me, many of your listeners may have available to them, then they can have that dignity of choice, can't they? That agency of I choose where I shop because I can now afford to travel to the shop. It's not just a putting some more pounds in the pocket will mean that you can buy what you want. A lot of it is you'll have the dignity of being able to choose. Mm. The voice of our clients around the universal credit uplift being removed earlier uh, this year, uh, early in 2021, was very much around 
while I have the extra 20 pounds a week, I was proud to stand in the queue in the supermarket. And when it's removed, I will feel the sense of shame that I'm standing in the queue for the food bank. That's that's very much the difference, isn't it? It's the human impact. I could get into the what happens in the budgets and how many people go without energy and uh, are going to be cold and frightened this winter and all that kind of stuff. But I think the very human bit of it, and uh, and for me, uh, people of faith should care very, very deeply about this because it's about the image of God in humanity, isn't it? And that dignity of being able to choose how you feed your family, to choose what you do with your time, to choose how and where you go to retrain, to work and things like that. I love that language you use, Gareth, of, of the dignity of being able to choose. And I also love that phrase you used earlier about faith being about more than just a ticket to heaven. And, and so just one last question from me before we kind of come into land is how does CAF and how do you approach that question of saying faith is about more than a ticket to heaven? We've got to protect people's dignity and give them the, the dignity of choice. And also think about CAF as an evangelical or faith sharing organization how do those two things marry up and how do we as christians and christians listen to this do that responsibly and do the evangelism that we might feel called to in our life in a way which maintains people's dignity and doesn't take advantage of people potentially in in vulnerable situations a brilliant question that i'm sure has 20 different answers um i can answer for me uh, from cat point of view, it's really important to us that our vision is that that tripartite approach of we want to see transformed lives, thriving churches and an NTK poverty. There are lots of organisations that want to see transformed lives and an NTK poverty. You can be a non-faith based anti-poverty charity and seek to do that. There are lots of organisations that want to see transformed lives and thriving churches. But CAP is not alpha. CAP is not a church planting movement. CAP is not only an evangelistic organisation. It is all three points of that triangle. Um, how do I go about well, seeking to share my faith in a way that doesn't take advantage of people in vulnerable circumstances? I've described myself as a Christian against poverty for a lot longer than I've worked at Christians Against Poverty. Um, and I think there are thousands and thousands and thousands of us out there who, through the course of our working life or our volunteering life, could have a much, much bigger impact on UK poverty than I can in my job at CAP. While I was working in the building society sector, I was going about you know that that verse around always being ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you now the hope i have of seeing poverty ended the hope i have of seeing the poor lifted up the hope i have of seeing a society transformed i want to have with my life the same impact on debt and poverty as william wilberforce had on slavery now when i have described that word for word to friends and colleagues in the building society movement it's knocked them back a step and then they've asked why now I can give an answer for the hope that's within me. Now, many of uh, my colleagues who provide the debt advice directly into homes or are speaking to clients over the phone have the same approach. The, the hope we have that you can be debt free, the hope we have that your marriage can be restored, the hope we have that your kids can be happy and thriving in school is such that people ask us, how can you be confident that will even happen? How can you want that for me? You don't even know who I am. The answer to that question, the answer to why I want dignity for you the answer to why i want your marriage restored is not because i think married people are happier people than unmarried it, it's because i know jesus i know the one who can restore your marriage i know the one who gives sight to the blind and raises the dead to life he can surely fix your marriage he can surely heal your kids he can surely uh, transform your life when we live lives that provoke the question how can you have that hope we get to do what peter says don't we around 
giving an answer for the hope that's within us. Uh, so, so that's how I go about it. That's how I know a number of colleagues go about it. Some people get into the Ministry of Christian Against Poverty very definitely on that evangelistic approach. That it's the transformed lives and thriving churches that's the two bits of our vision that is the, the biggest beating heart for them. Uh, and so some people would very much lead with God's original design for humanity was better than we're experiencing and describe what it was like in Eden and the fall and go through that story of the fallen humanity and God's uh, image of Israel as uh, his people on the earth. And then the hope that Jesus brings that in Jesus, we are all united. So some people will go through that more classical presentation of the, um, of the biblical theology gospel. And um, I talk about what heaven on earth could look like, maybe not with those words, but when I describe wanting to have the impact on debt and poverty as Wilberforce had on slavery, most people don't just nod and smile and go, oh, that's nice for you. Uh, most people say, wow, why? Or wow, how? And that's when I get to tell them that God birthed this desire in me many, many years ago that all people everywhere would experience the best that life has to offer here on this earth. And in doing so, be able to hear the good news that Jesus has even more for you than a better life here on this earth. But he, he has redeemed us and has a perfect and pleasing plan for our life now and a future for us in the new heavens and the new earth. It's so good to hear that put in context with your story, journey with your faith into caring for those who are in poverty and your, your journey into working for CAP. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. And I've certainly got loads to think about after hearing from you. We really appreciate your time. So thank you so much, Gareth. My pleasure, Beth. My pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Gareth. What great interview. I hope you really enjoyed that. I know that Ryan and I did. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I liked him. I, I enjoyed speaking to him. He sat there in his car. This is the magic of podcasting. You won't have known, but Gareth did all of that interview from his car, which just shows what a dynamic and versatile guy he must be. Um, Absolutely. They, wherever he is, he's ready to give insight about poverty. Absolutely. He's so great and he's so knowledgeable about all that Cap's done. And I really didn't know about his background. I thought it was so interesting about how he's worked in debt collection as a Christian. It's just not the image that I would have. Yes. That took me by surprise as well. It's one of those things where I just assume, wrongly, I'm sure, but that it's an industry of baddies that are doing mean things. So it's interesting, yeah, to, to see that that's where he's coming from. Yeah, we've obviously had our stereotypes absolutely thrown away and to hear about his compassion and care and Christian faith in that. Yeah, and it was so nice to hear about the work of CAP as well. My last job was with CAP. Didn't really meet Gareth, but certainly loved working for them. So what, what struck you from our conversation with Gareth? What stood out to you? What struck me about Gareth was how he is determined to give his life to care for others and to care for those who maybe have less than himself um, or low incomes to try and make better systems. He's really determined to do that in a compassionate and Christian way. I was really interested to hear about how he's done that through his career and found a really unique home for that at CAP. And I really enjoyed as well how thoughtful he is about the dynamics and structural poverty that we have in the UK and what it might look like to start working on bringing those down and there's so many great charities that are working on that but to hear that CAP as well is working on trying to not just help individual people 
but to help as a society be fairer and to care for each other better I thought that was really striking yeah it's interesting yeah you mentioned there like how it was kind of his call on his life and there's all sorts of interesting and challenging and difficult questions around ideas of calling and the, the way he speaks about wanting to be the William Wilberforce of poverty relief which is an incredible and gutsy thing to say and yeah I suppose for me there's lots of questions around calling and often when it comes to doing justice work it can feel to me like we've got such an uphill battle that there's just so much you know we've we as as a joint public issues team have highlighted so many issues that we are trying to do our bit to change and it can feel like flip this is insurmountable and so then to hear from Gareth like your goal should be to be William Wilberforce is quite scary to me anyway. How do you think we can in a day-to-day way respond to this call to seek justice without having to be William Wilberforce or maybe to re-understand what it means to be a kind of modern William Wilberforce? Because that to me, it can feel a bit overwhelming. Absolutely. And he did surprise me with that as well (laughs) because actually there's only one William Wilberforce Mm. and we're not all going to be the once in a generation known for making systematic change people and even us working for JPIT we're just small cogs in a whole machine and us as members of local churches what can we actually do as such small cogs in that machine I would guess that the call is for all of us to be invested in our communities and getting to know people with different backgrounds and life experience to us, supporting them and being supported by them, learning from each other. And I think the church is really good at this and an excellent place for this to happen. And then for us also to call for the wider change within our country, within our society, to speak out against injustice when we see it and to raise our voices together to call for change. And I guess yeah. that's a big part of what the Joint Public Issues team tries to do of connecting us all to using our voices for wider issues. And yeah. maybe a weird thing to say, but I think there's almost an acceptance there that in those wider changes, we can only be small cogs. Yeah. And that that's actually okay. It's, it's okay if a thousand of us decide to sign a petition and we feel like, such a small thing we can do but together the voice is much louder I think the trouble is sometimes with notions of vocation or calling is that we have a very theatrical understanding of of what that means literally in the sense of we think we are called to be Hamlet in the production of Hamlet or, or whatever it is and I just wonder if sometimes in life Maybe we're going to be, I don't know how far people are willing to let me stretch this Hamlet metaphor, but maybe you're going to be Gildenkratz or, or Claudius or, or, you know, one of the soldiers in Fortinbras' army. Beth is now rolling her eyes at me. But the, the, the <laughs> point is, you're, you're not always going to be called to be Hamlet. And, and Roe Williams has this phrase, which is, your calling is you. And I just, I, I think that just speaks into what you were just saying, like, you are where you are and you have a unique ability to connect to the people around you and to serve the people around you and to use your skills 
whatever they might be. Maybe they are skills which are going to be super useful in big, bold activism, or maybe they're skills which are going to be subtler and quieter. But yeah, I, I really, I really like that phrase that your your calling is you. Possibly also, it's one of those phrases which sounds good, but what does it actually mean? Um, which I think is a fair challenge, but I, I think it's a good a good place to start. And I, I liked what you were saying. The other thing I was thinking about from that conversation with with Gareth was, and I asked him about it just at the end there, how do we approach the relationship between serving others, particularly the most marginalised in society, and the desire, perhaps, or the quote-unquote calling to evangelism, to sharing the gospel? How do we do those in a way which... I, I suppose my concern is you hear stories about evangelistic movements which go and preach to the homeless, for example, in the slums in Brazil and say, hey, we'll, we'll look after you. Um, we'll give you something to eat. We'll give you something to drink. But you have to come and hear our talk about Jesus, our gospel presentation. And that's concerning if our attitude is that we will capitalize on people's misfortune or people's vulnerability to, to force them into hearing about Jesus, which is clearly not what, what Gareth is, is suggesting, I don't think. But I guess my feeling is we just have to really proceed with caution when we're talking about sharing the gospel, so to speak, and serving the vulnerable at the same time. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, how we do that well, how we do that safely. Yeah, definitely is a tension, but I, I personally think it's one of CAP's strengths that they offer people the gospel as well as offering that financial change and freedom. But it is for sure absolutely a risk because we all want people to know about Jesus. It's a, I think it's a good desire to share the, the truth that set us free with people who don't know him um and I guess as well in the cap model there has to be such trust there because the people who were meeting with those who need debt help are members of churches and there has to be such trust in how that's done and I guess a lot of that is up to caps training and how they talk about it because yeah it could so easily be that people feel like they have to respond to Jesus in order to be accepted by the church or in order to access that help, which obviously is not okay and that's such a risk um, and could be manipulative. Yeah, what do you think, Ryan? Is there a way that that could be mitigated or is that just a risk mm. that's inherent? I guess what's important for us at JPIT is that we do what we do and we seek justice in the world, irrespective of how people will respond to it. And I think to a great extent, the call to build the kingdom, the call to see justice in the world is there because it's the right thing, because it's the right thing, because it's the right thing. And whether or not people look at the work of, of JPET and go, wow, that's great. I want to find out more about why they're doing that. To me is secondary to trying to reflect a bit of the love of Jesus in the world at a structural level because I think that's what the right thing to do is 
So to me, and I, I recognise that, that that's not necessarily in sync with the attitudes of of all churches or all Christians or whatever, but or maybe even all of JPET. I'm speaking for myself there and, and not for, for JPET as a whole. But to me, it's about what's, what's your starting point and would you still do it even if no one saw it? And I think the answer is we try and do the right thing. We try and do the most loving thing simply because that is what it is. We hope you found it helpful. We also hope you're enjoying our little short series we're doing at the moment. We felt like in our JPIT team there's so much expertise and so we've been releasing some shorter podcasts. So yeah, we hope you're really enjoying those. Well, till next time, thank you for listening. Bye. Peace.